Uh, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 53. And just be looking at one single verse this afternoon. And the verse is Isaiah 53.5. While you're getting there, I want you to think of how you would answer this question. What does it mean that Jesus died for our sins? I remember asking that question to the man that led me to Christ. Um, you know, I had heard the language before, Jesus died for your sins, but I really didn't have the first clue about what it meant. And so he explained it to me with an analogy that costs home the point that there's a price to sin. There's a cost to it. And so as Christians, we had some understanding of what this is. We, we get that there is a cost to sin. But I'm, I'm quite certain that we don't fully understand it. Um, and I'm also quite certain that the more we understand it, the more we will be moved to praise and honor and glorify our Lord and Savior. And so I hope that God would honor himself tonight by, by really helping us in furthering our understanding of what it means that Christ died for our sins. So let's pray and we'll read our passage. Heavenly Father, we're going over something tonight that we're all familiar with. It's a passage that we're familiar with. It's a concept that we're, that we're familiar with. It's a belief that we're familiar with. But it's something that we need to remind ourselves of. And it's a weighty passage, Lord. You know that it is. I pray that you would help us to see the seriousness of sin and the greatness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. From this passage, then, we're going to ask and answer the following questions. Who's the he in this passage? What's happening to him? Why is this happening to him? And what is he accomplishing? Yeah, the passage is about Jesus. It's about the real Jesus, the biblical Jesus. This Jesus is the rock upon which everything we have is built. Let's remind ourselves who he is. We read it this morning in the Nicene Creed, and really it's a wonderful way of summarizing the biblical truth about who Jesus is in this way. The only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. So Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is very God of very God. 
he shares in the one being or substance or essence of God and is co-equal and co-eternal with God. And the Nicene Creed goes on about Jesus, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He came down from heaven. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So the Son of God emptied himself. There's a, really, there's a way that we sort everything there is. All of reality gets sorted into one of two categories. There is, and then every, that which is eternal, the creator, and then everything else is that which is temporal and that which is created. So, creator, created, creator, creation, creator, creature, creature, that those are the two categories that everything there is is separated into. All of reality is separated. It's either creator, on the one hand, eternal, or creation, creature, the created. And so, Jesus, who belongs eternally into the first category, he is creator in essence, in substance, in being. He's in the first category and he steps into the second category. The second person of the blessed, eternal, holy trinity added a human nature to his eternal divine nature and he became the God-man. One person, as we read in our question and answer, with two distinct natures. Okay, so one single person, one single person with two distinct natures, divine nature, which belongs to the eternal creator category, and human nature, which belongs to the creature category. And he's one person, he shares these two two distinct natures, they're not mixed together into a mixture of the God-man, it's the God-man without confusion or or combination with it, it's not a mixture of the two the divine does it doesn't become a divine human or a human divinity it's they're distinct and it's one person with two distinct natures he's truly god and truly man truly divine and truly human and when we think about that i i come to think what what can we liken okay what can our liken the glorious doctrine of the incarnation to what else do we see in our experience that's like that? How many single persons do we know that have two natures? None. There, there's no analogy. There's, there's nothing to liken it. I can give you some simple analogy about how something can be two in one sense and one in another sense, but I don't want to do that. Because any analogy that I give, anything that I put forth to you as though to say the incarnation is like this, would only 
would only cheapen. Uh, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't do justice to what this is. This is unique in the entire universe. Nothing else is like that. No one else is like that. So I don't have anything to liken um, the doctrine of the Incarnation to. And, and again, um, I know some people have, and, and I don't think it's wrong to say, well, the doctrine of the Incarnation, the two and the one, is like this, or the doctrine of the Trinity, three and one, is like this. It's three in one category, one in the other category, or in the case of the Incarnation, two in one category, two natures, and, and one in a different category, one person. And we can talk about that and say, we're not talking about a logical contradiction. There's no problem here. And we can give analogies of things that can have two in one and in one category and one in another. But purposely, I don't want to give any analogy for this right now. I want us to see the wonder of Christ, the eternal creator on the one category, coming down and not grasping equality with God and and humbling himself and taking this other nature on and here he is the god man and i don't and i want him to stand in a category of his own because he is in a category of his own and the incarnation really is a mystery to us we can have some understanding of it i just put forth some understanding the nicene creed gives us some understanding of it but no one has a full understanding of it this is a mystery in this we don't we we, we can't fully grasp it because we're on this category in the temporal with finite minds, sinful finite minds, I might add, we don't have the faculty to grasp all that that is. And, and, and because of that, it's a mystery to us. And we're happy to have it in that category. It's not a problem for us where some said, you can't explain fully the doctrine of the incarnation, can you? I said, no, no, I can't. It's a, it's a mystery to us. And don't let anyone else tell you that they don't have anything mysterious in their own thinking, right? Ask someone to define what consciousness is or energy. They can't do it. Oh, it's a mystery. Oh, we don't really know. Right? What happened before the big? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a mystery. We all have mysteries. These are happy mysteries that we have. We recognize our finitude and that we can't grasp these big things that are going on. So I'm I'm happy to have mystery in the Christian faith because of my finitude, and we ought to be happy with that as well. But though it's a mystery, we may have some hard time explaining it, we have a sure word from God on it. Okay? God has revealed this truth about himself in his word, and we, his servants, we bow to this truth, we submit to this truth, and we say amen to this truth. And you say, why do you believe that? Why do you take that mystery and not some other mystery? And we say that because God has revealed that about himself here. That's why I take it. I am bowing to what God reveals about himself. I'm going to let him tell me who he is. And when he says that that's the way it is, I bow to it and I say amen to it. And so, so that's what we have here. We have the wonderful doctrine of the incarnation. Christ, the God-man. And I have to ask the question, is, is this the Jesus that you believe in and trust in and worship? Is, it, is this the Jesus that you believe in and trust in and worship? Again, we're looking at the he that there is, and the he in this passage is important. It's the real Jesus, the biblical Jesus, the only Jesus that there is. And this is what we have to say about him. And the question is, is this the Jesus that we believe in and worship 
and praise and honor. Is, is this the one? <clears throat> Let me just remind you that any view of Jesus which is less than eternal God is eternally less than the real thing. Okay, so to take Christ as we see him in the category of the divine and do any kind of notching down is eternally less than the real thing, right? He, is, he, he eternally belongs into this category. And if we, if we explain him or hear him explain in any way that brings him off of that in his eternal divine nature, we are eternally wrong on who he really is. Okay, so this is the he of our passage. This Jesus is who we're talking about. Now, what is happening to him here? Jesus was pierced and crushed and chastised and wounded. Jesus suffered. Jesus felt pain. He was punched in the face. His body was torn to shreds. His head was pierced with thorns. His hands and feet were run through with nails. His side was stabbed with a spear. He gasped for air on the cross. His execution was among the brutalest forms of death ever known. And he suffered the mental agony of knowing what was going to happen to him. He sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane and he suffered the humiliation of the cross. He was spit upon by sinful men. He was treated as a vile criminal numbered among the transgressors. He suffered the betrayal of his closest friends. He was reviled by sinful men. His soul was going to be made a sin offering and he was forsaken by his heavenly father. We read further in Isaiah 53 that it was the will of the Lord to crush him, suffer. It was the will of the Father that Jesus would suffer. And as we read that, I wonder how long, how much time we take to consider that. That it was the will of the Father that Jesus would suffer this pain. And... Part of the unity within the Godhead, within the Trinity, is the unity of the will with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There is a unity within the Godhead, and part of that unity is the unity of a will. It was the will of the Father that the second person of the Trinity would come and take on flesh and suffer the way he did. It was the will of the Son that he would come and take on flesh and suffer the way that he did. And it was the will of the Holy Spirit that the second person of the Trinity would come and suffer the way he did. There is a unity within the Godhead and unity within the will of the Godhead. It was the will of the Father and the will of the Son and the will of the Holy Spirit that Jesus, Jesus would come and suffer the way he did. Jesus speaks about that really um, <clears throat> uh, clearly in John ten eighteen. He says, no one, takes, no one takes it from me, speaking of his life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. And you think about the motivation of this. Jesus also teaches that greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And so out of love for his friends, for his people, for his sheep, Jesus willingly suffered. The... Uh, the shorter or children's catechism asks this question, what kind of death did Jesus die? And the answer is the painful and shameful death of the cross. 
The death of Jesus was full of pain. The death of Jesus was full of shame. The eternal Son of God took clear today amenity and was tortured, humiliated, and put to death. And we sang it earlier today. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? When we look at the cross, the symbol of the cross, we see it everywhere. I wonder if we realize all that happened to Jesus on that cross. Everything involved in the suffering and the pain when we see the symbol of the cross and it's everywhere in our culture. Do we realize what happened to him? And as we think about that, as we think about the passion, the suffering of Christ, do we further that reflection by asking the question, why did it happen to him? Okay, and when we ask the question why, there's two ways to ask the question why. There's the, there's the why did, did this happen, and we got the answer. It was out of love, right? Jesus, out of love, came and took upon the form of human flesh and suffered the pain and died, and it was out of love for his people. But when we ask the second, the second kind of why question is, why was it necessary for Jesus to suffer and die? That's a different kind of question. Why was it necessary? Why did he have to suffer and die? And the answer to that question is found in the text. For our transgressions and our iniquities. Jesus suffered for his people because his people sinned. And also from the children's catechism, the question is, what does every sin deserve? And the answer is, the wrath and curse of God. What does every sin deserve the wrath and curse of God and you can ask yourself if you really believe that do you think that every sin every little sin deserves the wrath and curse of God do we believe that well let's let's help ourselves by defining what sin is sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God sin is doing what God says not to or refusing what God says to do. <clears throat> sin is saying no to God. Sin is rebelling against God. And so the person that refuses to obey <clears throat> um, is showing himself to be a rebel against the authority of God. That's what's happening. In, in every sin, great sin, small sin, what you're showing is your rebellion to God by saying no to him. He's saying do this or don't do this. And here and you don't do it. You, you, you disobey. You, you say no to him. He's, he's giving you a command. He's showing his authority over you and you say, no, no I can do it. It's either in a big thing or a small thing, but that's what sin is. Sin is saying no to God. Sin is rebellion. Sin is lawlessness. Behind every sin is a rebellious heart. And so <clears throat> I really do think it's important to speak about sin in this blanket category, but I don't want us to uh, confuse ourselves or, or perhaps get into the, into the incorrect thinking that every sin is equally as serious. Okay? Do you think about that? In, in one sense, every sin is categorized by rebellion. Every sin deserves the wrath and curse of God. But not every sin is as bad as every other sin. And, and the Bible speaks about that. Um, not every sin in national Israel in the Old Testament was punishable by death. It was um, coveting your neighbor's ox was not as bad as actually stealing your neighbor's ox. There are some sins, there's a, there's a, 
a range or a, a spectrum of very serious sin, heinous sin, and then there are smaller sins. There's the, the coveting of the ox or car in our, probably our situation now. It's, it's thinking, oh, I wish I had one of those. I don't, but I wish I had his. That's, that's not as bad as some of the other things. So there, there is a spectrum, and I don't want to sin against God. Sin in such a way to say, oh, it's, it's as bad as doing that as it is to do that, because that's rebelling against God, and so is that, so it's all the same. It, it's not the same, and the Bible recognizes that it's not the same. There's a spectrum. Um, there are lesser sins and greater sins, um, but I, I do want to speak about sin in a blanket category for this reason, because I think that the similarity and the motivation behind every sin is the same. The rebel heart of man commits the lesser sins, and the rebel heart of man commits the greater sins. So think about this. This is, again, big spectrum stuff. A young boy steals a piece of gum from a candy shop that costs five cents. We can say that this action is motivated by a heart that rebels against God. Okay? Young boy steals a piece of gum in a candy store. That piece of gum costs five cents. And we can say about that sin that this action is motivated by a heart that rebels against God. Hitler has six million Jews murdered in his conquest for world domination. This action is motivated by a heart that rebels against God. You see the similarity? The rebel heart is what's behind the greater sin and the lesser sin. Again, murder and gun stealing are on opposite poles of the serious spectrum. I'm not saying that they're equally as serious, but I am saying that they both come from a fallen, rebellious heart that says no to God's law. And so when we read in the children's catechism that every sin deserves the wrath and curse of God, we want to remember the sinfulness of sin, the seriousness of sin. And God rightly responds to this rebellion against his cosmic throne with proper outrage. The wrath and curse of God? What does wrath mean? It's, it's furious anger. It's, it's outrage. It's not just, I, 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 wish, I wish you didn't do that. The wrath of God is not a small reaction to sin. The wrath of God is a very serious reaction of God to sin. And there are a handful of things in Scripture that show us God's immediate wrath and justice against singular sins. We can remind ourselves of the sin of Adam in the garden. Right? He took a bite of a piece of fruit and God said not to do that. Okay? Fruit biting. That was the sin of Adam. And he was cursed. Eve was cursed. The ground was cursed. Satan was cursed. Everything fell. Humanity fell because someone took a bite of a piece of fruit. One sin and God showed and, and delivered a curse for it. We also see Nadab and Abihu. These are Aaron's sons. They were priests in training. They offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. God said, worship me this way. This is the kind of fire. Do it all the way I tell you to do. And they said, no, forget it. I'll do it this way. And God sent fire down from heaven to burn them up, kill them immediately. He ordered that their bodies be removed from the, from the, the camp. And he, he warned everybody, don't mourn, don't mourn the death of these two people. You can't mourn the death of these two guys. Burn them up, take their bodies out of here, no one mourn. No sackcloth, no ashes, don't do any of that. 
because they sinned against me, the single sin of offering unauthorized fire before the Lord. Then there's Uzzah, if you know the story of Uzzah. They were moving the Ark of the Covenant, and he reached out his hand to steady the Ark so it didn't fall in the mud. But there were clear rules where God said that Ark should not be touched by human hands. Uzzah touched it, and God killed him on the spot. One single sin, and God, God's immediate justice, his wrath and his curse happened that way. And then in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, they lie about how much money they got for the home that they sold, right? They lie to the Holy Spirit, and they both get killed for lying. Okay. Again, God is serious about sin, and God, God doesn't always respond with immediate justice for singular sins. That's true. There are only a handful of times in the Bible where we see him do that. But he has that. It just reminds us that he is the perfect and holy judge of all the earth. He has the right to return immediate justice for rebellion. So we see that God really is serious about sin and individual sin. But what about collective sin? What about the mass of sin committed by a single person? Can any of us count our sin? You couldn't even count the number of times you lied in your life. But that's not the only sin that there is. There is a mass of sin, a list of sin that you can't number that you that you committed on your own. And so what does the Bible say about um, the mass of sin for one person and even worse, the cumulative mass of sin by a people group? Who's going to number all of those sins? And what does the Bible have to say about that? Well, um, Deuteronomy 28 has two parts to it. We see in Deuteronomy 28, which is a pretty long chapter, we see two important truths contained in that chapter. And this is how God was dealing with his people, Israel. Okay, we see how much God blesses obedience and loves the obedience of Israel. The first part of chapter 28 is all about God saying, here are all the amazing blessings that you're going to get. For, for obeying all of the laws that you've heard from me today. But the second half, which is actually a lot more than half, beginning in verse 15, are all about the curses for disobedience. That's a long passage. Um, I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to give you a, a, a summary of it. But Deuteronomy 28, the whole chapter, is split into here are the blessings for obedience and here are the curses for disobedience. And as we look at, at the curses for disobedience, this is going to be this is going to be horrible, and I and it's supposed to be. But I want you to consider these things. How much of the cumulative sin of Israel would be yours if you lived in that day? How much of the cumulative sin of Israel would be yours if you lived in that day? And the question is, how well have you kept the Ten Commandments? So, <clears throat> let's read about the curses. Brace yourself and listen. I'll read verses 15 through 19, and then I'll summarize the rest of the chapter. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you be shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. 
the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. In the whole rest of the chapter, God continues to describe the curses that he'll bring upon Israel for disobedience and I'm going to summarize them for you now. Confusion, frustration, pestilence, wasting disease, fever, inflammation, fiery heat, drought, blight, mildew, dust, enemies, to be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, boils, tumors, blindness, oppression, robbery, the stealing of your wives, homes, fields, livestock, taking away of children, to be oppressed and crushed continually, driven mad by what your eyes see, stricken with grievous boils, exile, hunger, thirst, nakedness, lacking everything, extraordinary afflictions, severe and lasting, sicknesses, grievous and long eye, no rest, a trembling heart, failing eyes, languishing soul, Do you think that God has a nonchalant attitude about sin? Well, this is the Old Testament, though, right? Surely God has softened up his wrath against sin. We're in the New Testament time now, right? Well, remember Ananias and Sapphira. That was New Testament. God would have to cease being holy to change his mind about sin. That's really, that's really what, what would have to happen. You'd have to get, with the sin that you have on your soul, you'd have to come to God and say, God, I, I sure hope you're not as holy as you were back in the Old Testament. I sure hope you've changed your mind about your holiness and your, your regard for rebellion against your throne. Because if you haven't changed your mind about that, then I'm in as much trouble as Israel was for the sins that they committed. Now, we don't want God to change his mind about holiness. He can't change his mind about holiness. God is, God is forever and eternally holy. He's not changing his mind about that. He's immutably holy. And we want that. But when it comes to our sin, and what I just read in Deuteronomy, how are we going how, how to think about that? What, what, what are we going to do? This is what sin deserves right now. And the only reason that we're not suffering like this today is because of Jesus. Because the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the very next verse, Isaiah 53, 6. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. 1 Peter 2:24. So why was it necessary for the wrath to suffer and die? Because sin deserves the wrath and curse of God. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 I'm going to read you something from an old Puritan named John Flavel. 
Here you may suppose the father to say when driving his bargain with Christ for you. The father speaks. My son, here's a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? The son responds, O oh, my father, such is my love too and pity for them, that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all thy bills, that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in, that there, be, that there may be no after-reckonings with them. At my hand shalt thou require it. I will rather choose to suffer thy wrath than that they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. <clears throat> the father responds, But my son, if thou undertakest for them, thou must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare thee. Content, Father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. <clears throat> and though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. Well, what has Jesus accomplished for sinners like us? Upon Jesus was the chastisement that brought us peace. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. And with his wounds, we are healed. The soul-killing disease of sin <clears throat> is paid for by Jesus. The power, the penalty of sin has been paid. The power of sin is being overcome in the lives of his people and the presence of sin will be no more when we see him as he is in glory. Is this not a glorious gospel? Our trouble is keeping, keeping this in the front of our thinking. Forgetfulness happens to us. Fear creeps in. Waves of unbelief splash against our souls. So I want to end with some verses from Augustus Toplady in an old hymn that he wrote. It goes like this. From whence this fear and unbelief hath not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which Lord was charged on me? Complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost thou hast paid whate'er thy people owed. How then can wrath on me take place if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood? Thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine. Payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. Turn then my soul into thy rest. The merits of thy great high priest have bought thy liberty. Trust in his efficacious blood, nor fear thy banishment from God, since Jesus died for thee. Jesus died for our sins. That's what it means. Let's pray.